You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Brayman. Today, we're sitting down with John Farragon for part two of our series on the CROI conference, which occurred back in February. Thanks again for being here, John. Yeah, thanks so much. And again, like uh, Mariana said, this is the part two of our CROI update. So hopefully you get a chance to hear the first one before you before you listen to this one. So as a recap, for those who may not have listened to the, that last episode on this, what is CROI? So uh, CROI is our big conference each year, the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections. Um, this is something that uh, it's an annual conference that's been held for many, many years. And I would say it's probably the most important HIV meeting that's held each year. Um, it covers other viruses as well. It covers hep C, COVID-19 is a big focus this year and, the late, and last year, obviously. Um, this year's meeting was originally planned to be held in Denver uh, live, actually. It was the first time this was going to be done live, but they actually did want to switch it into an all-virtual conference due to concerns in January, if you recall, over the Omicron variant. So even the virtual event is very good, though. They've really done a good job of kind of, um, I think, creating not only just virtual, but also hybrid models. Um, I just went to an IASUSA meeting in Atlanta that was done very well. They had they had um, audience response systems for people who were at home, and you were able to kind of watch it live, too, you know, in, in the room. So really, really done well. But uh, Corey was all virtual, done well, jam-packed with a really good science uh, plenary sessions, posters, all highlighting some of the most recent data from researchers across the globe. Uh, part two of these updates we'll cover today. Um, we're going to cover three things: the, the cure data on the HIV patient. Um, we'll call we'll cover prep, uh, the prep HPTN083 study, and the risk of virologic failure and integrase resistance, and in the need for RNA testing. And then we'll talk about some of the prep guideline changes uh, as a result of these studies that were presented at Croy. All right, John. So let's talk about more of the data from Croy. Tell us about the HIV cure case that received quite a bit of press around the conference. Yeah. So this is probably probably one of the most important, least least lay press stories that actually was out there. Um, usually there's some story that, that comes out from Croy that that reaches the lay press, but this one was the one for this year, the story. So many of you may remember Dr. Gillespie a few, probably about a month, a month and a half ago, we were in April. So again, probably about a month ago, he did uh, a um, an overview of this case as well. Um, he was involved with some, with some of the some of the data. So he did a great job of kind of over providing a real detailed analysis of, of the information. So I encourage you to go back listen to that podcast. But if you're just listening to this one, just really as background, many of you know about the Berlin Berlin patient. 
So if you've been around for a while, Timothy, this, this Timothy Ray Brown was a patient who initially provided proof of concept for cure. Um, this patient received a bone marrow transplant um, to treat cancer. Um, and he got what we call these uh, CCR5 Delta 32 cells, which means that the CCR5 receptor obviously is what the HIV virus anchors onto to infect T cells. And this Delta 32 um, cells um, are um, uh, the CCR5 receptors absent in these transplanted cells. So, so it makes the virus unable to basically infect CD4 cells since that receptor is gone, gone. So if you receive a bone marrow transplant, you wipe out the old bone marrow and basically replace it with these um, with, with, with cells that, that have the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation, um, you can basically potentially cure the patient. And this is actually what happened with Mr. Brown. Um, he relapsed from his AML, received a bone marrow transplant with these cells, and then his, his antiretroviral therapy was able to be stopped after transplant, and he was essentially cured of HIV. So again, basically, you're replacing the bone marrow with these, you know, the, the, these cells, these Delta 32 cells that HIV is unable to infect, right? So that they can't infect additional CD4 cells. So over time, you're able to potentially stop therapy. So really incredible information to, to be found, All right. So then that was the first one. It was a similar patient from London, this Adam uh, Castillo, uh, who also had a similar procedure and was also deemed cured of HIV infection. So it's important for us to know as it relates to scale up, because this isn't something we're going to be able to do to replicate in large numbers of patients, but the, the Delta 32 um, mutation is rare occurs less than 1% of the population. So it's not even that common anyways. But the case that was presented at CROI, um, the, it was unique in a couple of reasons. Um, it was uh, a, a used an umbilical cord blood grafts, which again is a little even made, you know, too technical for me to kind of get into, but the concept is the same. Um, she was a female who had AML and received CCR5 Delta 32 uh, cord units. And about three years after, after transplant, uh, HIV medications were discontinued. So, so the case reports out the 14 months after stopping ARVs. And just to give you a sense, usually we think about, I think 30 months after, off of ART is usually considered a cure. So that's usually what we kind of think of as kind of being um, the way that the patients are determined a cure. But the, the case then reports out to 14 months after stopping ARVs, and then the patient has remained undetectable. So more than that, though, the most important thing, the, the, the specific bands or antibodies that identify HIV infection were not detectable at 55 weeks and have remained like that 52 weeks after treatment interruption. So that's the cool part. So when you look at the bands that occur, like the P24 antigen, all the different bands that we looked at, look at for, for determining if somebody has HIV, those antibody bands basically have disappeared over time. So whatever's circulating, there's, there's not enough virus or there's no virus basically circulating in the patient now because they're essentially cured of HIV and these band uh, analysis kind of shows you that. So it, it's it's pretty incredible uh, to go back and, and take a look at. So in summary, this is the kind of story, 14 months off of ART, no viral rebound. So there's no ARVs in plasma, um, uh, no, um, no detectable or no HIV uh, in plasma, no detectable replication competent latent reservoir. So they looked at latent reservoir through some really highly specific technology. Um, they analyzed a bunch of different T cells and showed that there was no HIV. Undetectable HIV when specific cellular immune responses, HIV antibody negative, in vitro resistance to, to lab and autologous virus. All this is all undetectable. Um, negative HIV1 PCR, um, uh, the 
and remains clinically well with no graft versus host disease. So really provides this proof of concept for the first time of really cord blood cells being used uh, and also more proof that HIV reservoirs can be kind of cleared with these bone marrow transplants to allow for HIV remission and cure. Really incredible information. And if there's a way to scale it up, you know, we haven't really, we're not there yet, but, you know, certainly if, uh, if you, this can be done through cord blood, uh, if you could maybe genetically engineer you know, uh, these Delta 32 type of, uh, type of, you know, blood cells, maybe there's a way to do it. But again, it's, this isn't ready for prime time for scaling up for, for cure, but it's an interesting concept. And now really kind of the third patient who is kind of in this situation where these Delta 32 transplants make a difference. So just to get this straight, basically bone marrow transplants with that CCR5 mutation may be a strategy for cure, but certainly not something for large scale use. Is it really just something that's case by case at this point? Yeah, I think exactly. I think there's a there's a, a nice webinar from the CDC from um, one of the physicians and they talk about this, but it's not going to be able to be scaled up for use, but it's providing some additional proof of concept and support for the strategy for 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 cure. So it's interesting. All right. I know we've talked a lot about injectables for HIV treatment and HIV prevention. I understand that there was also some updated data on the studies of cabotegravir for PrEP. What can you tell us about that? Yes, yeah, so, so the next is some, some interesting data on cabotegravir from the HPTN 3 study. So cabopivirine we talked about in part one, that was we covered that Atlas 2M study. But this is the HPTN 3 study. This is not for treatment, but for, but for prevention of HIV. And, and there's some really good data that's been uh, from this analysis. But remember that cabotegravir alone is now approved as a drug called Apertude, which is available in the United States for, for prevention for HIV. Um, but essentially, when you look at the most recent analysis of the study that led to its approval, one of them, the HPTN 083 and the 084 was, the, was in females, but uh, uh, the 083 study was in um, men and transgender, transgender women. But it demonstrated that really long-acting injectable cab um, Cabotegavir alone, it was superior to oral TDF FTC or Chuvada for HIV prep across populations and regions. So just by by way of background, um, there was 4,500 roughly participants, uh, most about a third from the U.S., 43% from Latin America, and about 16% from Asia, some from Africa as well. 12.5% transgender women, uh, 50% of the U.S. enrollment were black, which I think is really important for us to know because you know prep and in, in patients who are Black or African-American PrEP numbers are, are down compared to white patients, especially in men. So it's a really a big, a big, um, a big issue, I think, for us. Um, the um, 67% were less than 30. So again, if you look at you know, the new patients that are getting infected, you know, if you look at like 50, you know, um, uh, you know, 24, that kind of, you know, 13, 13 to like, you know, 24 around that age, that those are the patients that are that are most commonly in, in, in infected. And you know, there's there's they're cut out that way in, 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 the, uh, in the demographic data from, from CDC. But patients either received Truvada or Cavitegavir, um, the Cavitegavir injection was given every other month. And when you look at the HIV incidence, there was 25 infections in the Cavitegavir arm compared to 72 infections in the Truvada arm. Now, this is actually the updated data that covers like the unblinded period, it covers everything, but this is the final analysis for, for this. Um, incidence rates were 0.54%. In the uh, cabotegravir arm versus 1.57% in the in the Truvada arm. Again, you can see there's some statistically significant difference based on on those numbers. Um, cabotegravir is shown to be superior 
And then, so impressive results for cavitegavir. However, the reality of this is that most of the people in the Truvada arm were not taking, taking their drug. So that's important too. We actually saw a nice analysis for, uh, for uh, adherence and basically showed that about, about two thirds of the patients, only about two thirds of the patients on Truvada had actually adequate levels that would be acceptable for HIV protection. The other third were probably not taking it or had low levels, not taking it all the time. Similar analysis was also done on the cavotegavir. They looked at covered coverage, which meaning that they had adequate levels of cab to protect them against HIV infection. And that was only about 88% of the time as well. So, and you know, patients don't always come up to show up for the visit. They show up late or they don't take their Truvada. And it's the bottom line, but it's clearly, you know, this drug really does work. So I think that the most important thing here though, um, is that breakthroughs are, are, um, are, are very, are very rare. Um, but there were actually seven cases of breakthrough that occurred in, in the cab uh, long acting um, arm that, is, that occurred despite having on-time injections. So these are patients with with good levels, right? And they still had a breakthrough. So why is that happening? We don't really know. You know, none of these drugs are perfect for PrEP, but again, I think it still provides, you know, some really good evidence that, you know, if you take, if you go show up every every two months for your for your PrEP, you know, you have a very low chance of getting of getting HIV infected if you're on this injectable drug. You know, again, 4,600 patients uh, uh, person years of follow-up really, really kind of looks good. And again, this is approved um, in the U.S. for patients. John, I think you mentioned something about possible resistance in people who broke through on cabotegravir. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this is this is kind of complex to, to explain, you know, without without graphics. But um, you know, I encourage you to take a look at some of the data. I think some of this is actually online now because the, the the meeting's been been over for a while now. But uh, very important information. So there were patients who actually broke through the cabotegavir and developed resistance. So essentially, remember these are patients that are not HIV infected. So these are patients who are uninfected and they're basically in cabotegavir. And if you get infected while you're on cabotegavir, monotherapy is happening. You only have cabotegavir. So the concern is if you do break through and you do get HIV infected and you have cabotegavir in your system, will you develop resistance? And part of this um, um, is the fact that even the fourth generation HIV testing that they use sometimes missed some of the infections. And this is uh, this is a little bit different, but what it basically shows us is that um, if you if you get cabotegavir, even if you're on time and uh, and you wind up getting HIV infection, or if you have a late injection and you wind up getting HIV infected, sometimes the fourth generation test may not pick it up right away. So what they're now recommending is that you actually get viral load testing, and that's a whole other topic. But the bottom line here is that there were um, there were 16 patients that acquired HIV infection. Five patients actually developed integrase resistance when they broke through. So if, if they had actually done viral load uh, RNA testing at each visit, they would have prevented major insty resistance or prevented additional insty rams from occurring if they if they had done uh, HIV uh, viral load testing. So the bottom line is anybody who's on prep with cabotegavir, they have to get fourth generation testing at each at each visit, and also they need a viral load, and that's that's the big change in the guidelines now, uh, which you know which we um, will probably have to start have to start doing for people. So the new CDC guidelines now recommend both that fourth generation testing and a viral load testing um, to hopefully identify these breakthrough cases earlier. If you identify them early with that viral load testing, um, these uh, uh, these cases of integrase resistance would be very unlikely to have occurred if you had, if you had done that. 
So you mentioned the PrEP guidelines. Is there anything else that providers need to know as it relates to oral or injectable PrEP? Yeah, so I think uh, just a few more things. If you're on TAF-FTC, the new recommendation is to get annual triglycerides, cholesterol, and weight monitoring. If you remember, there were some LDL elevations for patients on TAF, triglycerides, and also some weight, um, some weight issues too in some patients. Uh, I, think, I think the 96-week data, I think it's 1.7 or 1.8 kilogram weight gain over uh, versus Truvada. So TAF-FTC, make sure you have that done. Uh, for injectable PrEP, the HIV testing every two months. That also includes antigen antibody and viral load assessments. And this is also true for oral PrEP as well. So that, that HIV viral load, is, we haven't been doing that, but now the viral load recommendation for CDC is going to be uh, to get actually that viral load testing as well at each of your three-month visits if you're on oral, uh, oral, oral PrEP. So every four months, STI testing should be done for those patients who are on injectable PrEP. So you're getting injectable PrEP every other month and every other visit. So every four months, you get the STI testing is basically what they're recommending. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about all of this key data from CROI 2022. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.necaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.